0: Plus. Talk
1: Recorded live. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Travis and Blake and, and Jen's Drunken Horror Adventures. I mean, I don't even... I can't keep track of it anymore. Somehow, I'm the constant, but Blake's been pretty constant lately, too. What's going on, Blake?
2: Oh, not much, good, sir. Just ready to get involved and have a good time. This Monday sucked, and let's make it better.
1: Yeah, exactly. And of course Jen from Colorado is joining us as well. Jen's grabbing herself a beer, but you know she joined us at the tail end of the Jeffrey Dahmer episode. And considering she lives in Colorado, I mean what perfect movie to talk about for her.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh you know as we usually do I'll get into some brief facts about the movie uh and we'll get into more specific ones later. So this movie, The Shining, is what we're talking about tonight. Of course, we're talking about the one from 1980, uh, you know, starring Jack Nicholson, the one that most people think of when they think of The Shining. This movie gets an 8.4 on IMDb, and it's not so much that, like, I don't think it deserves an 8.4 or anything. It's just that IMDb audience are such assholes sometimes, that I'm surprised they give it this high of a rating. (laughs) Anyone else surprised by that, or do you think do you think that's you know par for the course for them? Because I mean, they don't even give Halloween an eight point anymore. It's got like a seven point nine. Yeah, they're stuck up, pretentious guys that get on there and
2: post. They're they're weekend warriors with a the keyboard. They're, they're, you know, they're badasses. You know, with a, with a computer. But yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're all riled up tonight, aren't you?
2: Yes, sir. This thing has sucked, and I want to make it better. Except for my wife starting a new job. That's a good thing.
1: Uh, I saw that. Very good. I'm happy to hear that. Hey, um, so I'm going to ask you, Blake, because you're more of a um, connoisseur of the book than I am. Um, do you know when the book came out?
2: Uh, the book came out in 1977. It was published in 1977, and uh, uh, King, you know, was very proud of it, and, you know, he was going through some hard times, and we'll get into that later, but uh, not to spoil anything too much, but Jack Torrance is a little bit of a... <clears throat> Semi-autobiographical thing about him. There's a lot of there's a lot of Jack Torrance and Stephen King at the period in which he wrote this book. So.
1: Very cool. Well, we'll definitely get there. Um, well, the movie came out May 23rd, 1980, um, and. You know, that was right around the time that Friday the 13th was coming out. So, you know, you get a couple of, I guess, historic movies in the same year, the same summer, really, or close to summer. True. And, and of course, our director is Stanley Kubrick, which, you know, uh, Stanley Kubrick stands on his own merit. You can name a bunch of movies. Most people would probably think of Clockwork Orange, maybe. But, you know, there's a ton of others, at least in the... I guess, semi-horror genre. What about you, Jen? When you think of Stanley Kubrick, who do you, what do you think of?
3: Um, my first thought is Full Metal Jacket. I freaking love that movie, so I always think of that when I hear Stanley Kubrick, so.
1: Full Metal Jacket. God, you know, I, I saw this movie a shit ton as the or I saw a Full Metal Jacket a shit ton as a kid, but it's been years and years since I've seen it, which is kind of crazy, really. But let's get into uh, the actual movie itself here. So, I mean, we'll do this old school, you know, All My Heroes Wear Mask style, uh, and we'll just kind of, I'll get you two's opinion as we go along. I mean, this movie, if you haven't seen it a million times, well, then uh, now's a good time to pop it in and just kind of read along with us. But... Anyway, so the the movie kind of starts off, and we get an awesome, I think awesome, skyline shot of, uh, like, the forest, I guess, in Colorado there, and just, you know, an overhead view, and, you know, I don't really get too into, like, how good a shot is, but in this movie, for some reason, it really sticks out to me. Did you all kind of, whenever you kind of rewatch this movie, do you, do you kind of notice that from the start, too? Oh, yeah, it's a great shot. <laughs> yeah, it is
2: a good shot. Kubrick is known for that, though. Uh, we didn't get into it because with your drunk ass, you obviously skipped over asking me what my, uh, what my film was I associated him with, but that would be 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it's very has um, got some very good um, cinemagraphic shots in it, too. He, he approached a lot of movies with a lot of an art director's kind of standpoint, so
1: I think that was pretty great, you know. Nobody can expect much from me tonight, I guarantee you, because I've been drinking for a while, and I can tell you right now I'm going to be fucking up throughout this thing, but I'll do my best. So anyway, we get the scene of uh, you know uh, the overhead shot, and basically it starts off with uh, Jack Torrance, which, of course, is played by J- Jack Nicholson. He's interviewing for a caretaker job at the Overlook he- uh, Hotel, and basically you get the idea that he's trying to rebuild his life. Uh, you know, uh, he lost he lost the job as a teacher. They don't really tell you that. But you're getting you're getting the impression that something's happened, and, and this is kind of his way to start over. And um, I, I don't know if you all noticed this, but the guy that's interviewing him, it, something about this guy interviewing him, he, I swear to God, he looks like he's, like, the president of the United States or something, the way he sits behind his desk with the American flag sitting on the desk. Something about it was really <laughs> weird. I don't know if they were trying to, like, I don't know if they were going for some sort of weird, uh, you know, reference there or what the deal was. Yeah, they were. This, okay. the in the book, which we'll get into later, he's
2: <clears throat>
1: he's definitely
2: the uh, voice is just for uh for Torrance coming in and taking the job, but he said it was left up to the uh, the higher ups, you know, to, to hire him, and he really had no choice. But uh, a little bit of a side note: if you look at his desk while he sits behind it, next to that American flag, there's a small miniature acts <clears throat> so it's almost like a little bit of a foreshadowing thing of what's going to happen later on
1: yeah there's a lot of little weird subtle things in this which the documentary room 237 or or whatever the hell the name of it is gets into a lot weird ass conspiracy theories and things like that which we can get into later i'm sure there's about a million things we'll get into but this you know this hotel manager I, this whole conversation between him and the hotel manager it seems like there it's a do nothing scene but it's really not it's kind of like sucking you in with the because you're you know Jack Nicholson's just so good here and and the way he's just kind of talking to the guy i don't know what it is about you know the the uh, dialogue between the two of them that actually makes you pay attention but it does but then it really you know grabs you and this guy starts talking about the fact that uh, well i do have to tell you you know Uh, Once upon a time, uh, the caretaker, Charles Brady, you know, he went crazy and he killed his wife, killed his two little girls, and they were eight and ten, and then he killed himself with a shotgun in his mouth. So, I mean, that part to me grabs you right off the bat. Jen, um, get into uh, the the location of it, because you've been there, right?
3: Uh, Yeah, I was... This was, like, I was drunk, like, this was, like, 10 (laughs) years ago. Me and an old friend of mine, we used to do booze cruises. We were trying to make it to the Coors Factory. Well, we somehow ended up in Estes Park and uh, just ended up, like, running around the hotel there and on the property for a little bit. You know, honestly, it doesn't really, like, you walk in there and it's completely different from what you're used to, like, what you see in the movie, Um, And they just did, uh, earlier this year, they're actually in the middle of remodeling it. They got a $46 million loan to remodel the place, and they're adding a um, shining museum, and they started, they've opened the maze, but the maze isn't going to be nearly as cool as it is in the movie. But, yeah, Um, it's not a bad little place, but it'll be, I definitely want to go back after they do the remodel to see how it looks.
1: Yeah, that would be like a tourist, I mean, just, you gotta, you gotta do that if you're in the area, it sounds badass, but, you know, to get back into this whole, you know, dialogue between the two of them, uh, Jack Nicholson, he takes the job, but, you know, I thought it was interesting, his reaction, because he kind of, like, makes a face, and he's like, well, I can guarantee you it's not gonna happen to me, and it just kind of, you can already tell from the start that there's gonna be foreshadowing here with what he's saying, right? Right. Oh, yeah. So, um, we kind of we kind of go to a different location, and uh, Jack's son Danny, Danny Lloyd, uh, he he's he he's like talking to his imaginary friend. You're getting some again. They seem like do not nothing scenes, but you start to realize that it's all connected here. Where uh, you know he's like talking. You think to his imaginary friend, but you'll get more into that later. And he starts having this seizure. Um, because he's seeing this imagery that his friend Tony, his imaginary friend, he says, um, shows him of this this blood that's splashing out of an elevator in the, uh, the Overlook Hotel, which, you know, we get to see this several times throughout the movie. And I, I don't know if this is completely true or not, but I've always heard that the way they got this by the censors was that they told him it was rusty water and not bloody. It wasn't blood, it was rusty water.
2: Yeah, I've heard the same. Now, we've talked about it before, Travis. The MPAA, where they were crucifying directors left and right—Kubrick, Craven, uh, you know Carpenter. Everybody had to just cut, 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 cut. Just cut the shit out of the movie. Take the best parts out. 18 seconds here, 30 seconds here, and it just—yeah, that's how they got it by. They told them it was rusty water.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny too because Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, if it had come out, it had just come. Out, I can't remember the date maybe Friday 13th was May 13th or maybe it was June 13th but either way it's right around the same time and that was really the one that fucked all other movies over but this one was dealing with the same bullshit even around that time I mean the the same year of release so it's obvious the MPAA had the wild hair up their ass about something so you know they bullshitted them they got it through and it's a damn good thing they did because it's one of the most important things about the entire movie. Um, so uh, another part of this is that, uh, Jack, you know, he calls his family and he tells Wendy that he's going to be there late. Basically, he tells her that, you know, he got the job. So they're going to be moving there to this place, um, a secluded place, which we haven't gotten into this yet. It's kind of like in the middle of nowhere. And during this conversation, um, you know, Jack asks the, the general manager or whatever the guy is about, you know, why Why don't you just keep it open during this time? And it's like, it's almost impossible to get to this place because there's so much snow that builds up. And, uh, you know, it's just for for the sake of trying to uh, keep it in good condition, you're just better off having somebody stay there. And that's pretty much what his job is to do, um, is, you know, to be caretaker and take care of this place. And, of course, during this dialogue also, uh, Jack Torrance talks about how he's a writer and that, you know, time alone's exactly what he needs and that his family's is going to love it, which, you know, it, it's obvious he didn't give two shits what they think anyway, let's be honest. Right. <laughs> this is all for him, which, you know, whatever. I don't even know what the hell Wendy does, if anything. I guess she's a housewife and then the kid, he's weird anyway. So <laughs> I was trying to think about what to say and then I just looked at him and I'm like, just weird. So. Um you know i guess I guess the you know the family drives up together to uh i guess move up there i mean there's not really much else to it they're they're moving up there and during the trip up there um one of the one of the parts that i that I picked up on was uh uh, his wife, his wife asks, "Isn't this where the Donner Party got lost?" And and then Jack Torrance starts telling his kid about the Donner Party and how they were cannibals. And uh, Danny was like, uh, "Well, I know who the, the Donner Party is. I know all about, or I know all about cannibals." And he's like, "I saw it on TV." And, and Jack Torrance is like creepy as shit when he's like, "See, he saw it on TV." And he already looks fucked up in this movie. It's like, you know what's coming with this guy, even if you haven't seen the movie.
2: That's the problem. That's the problem Stephen King had with it. He just, uh, he thought that Jack Nicholson was a a bad idea to cast him. He was looking at people like John Voight, who did Deliverance about eight years prior. Somebody that looked like they had a more well-meaning attitude. Uh, uh, We'll get into the differences, I guess, later between the novel and the film. But he just thought Jack Nicholson was just all wrong. He was just too malevolent,
1: too sinister-looking. So. uh. That he is. Um, and also, I, I do want to mention, whenever the movie starts out, I, I didn't mention this, but you get that awesome score. You get that bum, 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 bum. Blake, I'll let you talk about that. I'm sure it had uh, some sort of influence on you. I'm sure you enjoyed that.
2: I, I did. That's what I do for a living uh, for the most part outside of teaching uh, guitar and teaching music is I do comp- composing for a lot of uh uh, you know, lower-budget horror films, and sometimes for ones that have a bigger budget. it just That's one of the things. That score, Carpenter's Halloween, John Williams' score for uh, Jaws and Star Wars, and then, of course, Bernstein's score from Nightmare on Elm Street. Those all influenced, uh, influenced me. I've actually got to send you some things. Maybe you can use them on the Nightmare show. I did a score that I did for one of the films that ended up not getting made. And they talked about it. And it was going through production hell and they didn't end up making it, so I got to keep the uh, rights
1: to the uh, score. I'll send that in. I think you'll like it. It's creepy shit. Nice. <laughs> nice. I like it. Um, Jen, do you like that score or is it even anything that resonates with you?
3: You know, I do, but the thing is is I actually I was looking through my movies the other night and I realized I actually don't have The Shining and I was kind of upset because I wanted to watch it before I called in tonight. So it's I don't not, remember a lot of it, uh, unfortunately. It,
1: so it, it's really easy for me to remember, it, and only because I've got a um, like horror music, uh, horror movie music CD that I listen to around Halloween every year. Track seven on that is The Shining. So I've I've heard this song a million times, you know, um, and it gets kind of weird after a while because it sounds all ghosty, and I, I don't know how to explain it. But the first I don't know, two minutes of it, it's really awesome. And, um, yeah, I can listen to it a lot. The bum, 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 uh, it, there's something about it that's just awesome to me. It's almost like a funeral march. It's, it's building the
2: tension and showing you there's going to be a lot of different uh, dynamics, especially when you start seeing flashbacks of the girls. They have that sharp chord stab. It's like a D minor chord stab. And uh, I think they got that a lot from uh, the gentleman who did Psycho, uh, where he just took some camera strings dropped some stuff on him. And just sharp
1: Bernard Herman, is that?
2: Bernard Herman, that's correct. Good job, sir. You're not too drunk after all. I'm
1: proud of Fuck, you. Fuck, man. I was sitting here digging into my Harry Manfredini interview in my mind. That's what I was trying to do there. So, yeah. there we go. Well, my two yeah. interviews with, with Harry Manfredini, but not to name drop. Anyway, so um, we get some scenes at the hotel where, you know, Danny and, and by the way, let me ask you all right off the bat before we even get further. What do you think of Shelley Duvall in this movie, Olive Oil? What do you all think of her? Does she annoy you? Does does she play the role perfect? What what do you think? Jen, I'll let you go first this time.
3: Uh, She annoys the shit out of me. I just, I can't, I can't handle it. Like, I get angry at her every time I watch the movie just because, like, (laughs) bitch, do something. Like, quit crying and locking yourself in a room. Fucking do something. Be a mom. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah for real so what do you think Blake um,
2: well you know at first when I saw her I was like this this chick because I grew up in an abused childhood and I've seen a lot of these things firsthand. she's so willing to fucking come to Jack's side oh it was just purely an accident it's not that my husband's a fucking asshole drunken piece of shit that needs to go to fucking AA it's never that mm-hmm. All it was mm-hmm. just and actually, she's so complacent, so willing to, like, just be his lapdog. It's It's sickening, because in the novel, she is not. And I was like, what the fuck did they do to her character? You know?
1: Really? Well, yeah. Um,
2: in the novel, she's very self-reliant. She, like, talks straight-up funky to his ass, and it's
1: amazing. I love it. Stanley Kubrick, he was all over her in this movie, or during the shooting of this movie, made her cry all the time. And I guess he was going... Trying to get the emotion that he wanted out of her, and I guess at the that, end of the day he did. But yeah, yeah, she's
2: just a static character, really. I mean, you know, ugh.
1: I think a lot of people, I think most people that see this movie want to, I don't know, chop her up with an axe. But <laughs> we'll we'll leave it at that <laughs> for now because we'll get back to that. um so anyway, during the scenes where uh, everybody's kind of meeting and people are leaving the hotel for the season because that's what we're getting to. We're getting to the point where it's just going to be Danny, Jack, and Wendy sitting at the hotel, you know, by themselves with nobody around for miles and miles. Well, Danny's meeting with this Dick Halloran guy, bald black guy. We can call him Scatman Crothers because that's who plays him. But anyway, it, it's we get these this weird scene where, like, uh dick halloran figures out that uh that danny has has this gift and i don't know what to how to explain it other than it's just the shining and he's got some sort of like telekinesis or psychic powers blake maybe you could kind of expand on this because in the movie they go into it but i don't feel like they really flesh it out in the movie very much and i'm sure in the book they go further into it
2: they do they go further into it um he possesses the shining. It's sort of like a, a telekinesis, almost a borderline psychokinesis thing, like you know, you see with uh Tina Shepherd in a uh, Friday the thirteenth part seven. But uh he's uh he was from Derry, uh, oddly enough, and he had the shining ability and he uh, drove a nineteen fifty eight Plymouth Fury, which again yeah. that's amazing that we tied all those things together. But yeah, he possesses the gift called the Shining. And um, he, you know, just to go into his character a little bit more, he actually makes an appearance in several other books, including It. He's uh, one of the only people that can see It in its form as an adult. He basically saved... uh, Mike Hanlon's father, this black nightclub called The Black Spot, was burned down by the uh, agency of white decency. It was basically the main equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan, and they burned it down, and he saved Mike Hanlon's father. So, uh, again, it's just that the, the Shining helped him do that. So he sort of always possessed it, and then, um, ever since he was a child, and then the sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep, he makes an appearance in there. So, they did do a steep one, and my wife has read it, and it's absolutely fantastic. It kind of picks up, you know, with Danny. But, anyway, I'm a little bit off topic. But, yeah, he, in the book, to go more into it, his childhood and stuff, he's not a static character. And he, I hate to say it, but in the book, he lives. He doesn't die in the book. He lives. So, for whatever reason, Cooper decided to kill him off in the movie, but he does not die in the book.
1: Right. Yeah. So... Which we'll get to, of course. But, you know, and while he's talking to him, um, Danny's asking him about room 237 uh, specifically because he's asking him about the hotel. And, of course, uh, he's like, are you scared of the hotel? And, and you know, is like, no, no, you know, it, everything, you know it, – it, uh, places just like people, you know, there's good ones and bad ones, and there's things that are left behind, like burnt toast, basically. He, he had a whole explanation here, which was pretty cool. This whole conversation, I thought, was, a, again, interesting. And um, you can kind of tell that Dick Halloran, like, he knows more than he's letting on, right?
2: Yeah, he does, absolutely.
1: But he does warn Danny to stay the hell out of room 237, that there's nothing there that he needs to see. Ain't no reason to be there. So, um... You know, you know there's some shit that's up, and and of course Danny knows that there's some shit up. How old Danny in this again? I mean, how old's he supposed to be? He's
2: like nine, eight, yeah. nine, ten, somewhere like that. It fluctuates depending on who you
1: ask. Yeah, I mean in the in the movie it seems like he's like six, five, six, something like seven maybe, because wow. he's riding around on a big wheel. Once yeah. you get to a certain point, I figure the big wheels out the window.
2: Yeah yeah, but yeah in the movie he's like 5 or 6, but I think in the in the
1: novel he's a little bit older. So well, and not to go scene by scene, but you know basically as this moves along, we're starting to get the feeling and they're doing it in all sorts of different ways, but they're kind of showing the deterioration of Jack Torrance's mental state. And this is one of the huge differences between the book and the movie, to my knowledge, and I've read the book, but it's been years and years and years and years, like, I mean, so long that I can't even remember the book, but I, you know, I've read the kind of the close-notes version of the book recently, so, um, you know, I know that one of the big differences is that this movie kind of concentrates on the cat fever aspect of The Shining, you know, the hotel and, and being isolated from people, uh, whereas the book's more about the supernatural aspect of it. Is that about, right...
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, and that's another one of the big problems that, that Stephen King had with it is uh, in the book, Jack is very likable, and he he starts off meaning to only to only have the best intentions. You like his character genuinely, and uh, it, it goes more into the uh, the deterioration or the degradation rather of a normal man going insane slowly and being taken over by this evil. Whereas in the movie. It's an evil man who's already fucking crazy who is trying to go keep himself from going right over the edge of this like straight up fucking nuts. You know. So it's like it it starts wrong and I and I kinda see where Stephen King came with that. It's like it's that's what makes the book so scary, is he starts off fine. He's just he's a little haunted alcoholism, and, you know, he had a bad relationship with his dad, and authority issues, and that's something else they get into in the book, is the reason why he was kicked out of school was he hurt a kid. He lost control and beat the shit out of one of these kids that slashed tires on his car. So they, they fired him for that, and the kid went to the hospital. So uh, that's, again, you don't see that in the in the film. In the mini series do, which, you know, we'll get into that later. But overall... Yeah, it's, it's totally different in the books than it is in the original film. Jen, have you read the book?
3: I have. I um, The last time I read it was a couple of years ago, right before Dr. Sleep was released, because I totally was going to – I bought that, too. Um, but, you know, I it's been, you know, like I said, a couple of years, so I don't remember all of the details. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: And, yeah, so, yes, I have, but <laughs> –
1: I hear you. There, there's, awesome. <laughs> there's probably a hell of a lot because I know how a Stephen King book is and how intricate it is. And even if oh, you're yeah. trying to go shot by shot in a movie about the book, it's almost impossible because of the imagery he uses. But um, to, to continue on the path we are going down, you know, during all this, you know, you, you get kind of the different, the different people and what's going on with them. You've got Jack, you've got Danny, and you've got Wendy. And, you know, Wendy, I don't see too much of a change in her as the, the time wears on. Danny, it's like he's getting fucked with by the supernatural, which Blake was talking about in the book. It's more prevalent, obviously. But for Danny, he's definitely getting fucked with. He's seeing images, and this may just be his mm-hmm. shining working here, but he's seeing images of the two murdered girls, and this is where everybody's kind of creeped out by little kids in the same dress. <laughs> and Danny, come play with us, Danny. Um, forever and ever, and it's showing scenes of <laughs> their like massacred bodies, um, and you know, and he'll he'll some, and this is usually around room two thirty seven, right? Blake. Yeah, usually it is.
2: Um, I, I hate when people talk about room two thirty seven because that was created solely for the movie. There is no room two
1: thirty seven. Right.
2: Two seventeen. So it's fucking fuck two thirty seven. This is <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs>
1: Hey, I'll take the movie. That's all I'm saying. I like the movie. Mm-hmm. So, But we'll get there. Um, Wendy and Danny, uh, they, they have... Uh, you can tell Wendy and Danny are still fine with each other, even with Danny being fucked with and everything. Wendy and Danny still have a good relationship, all that BS. Jack's kind of in his own fucking world. He goes into his, his writer's world, basically. He just kind of shuts himself away from the others. And so whatever cabin fever he already had going on, it gets worse. Um, because of that, but Wendy and Danny, they kind of take a walk through the uh, the hedge maze. This is another difference between the book and the movie. In the book, obviously, you have the hedge animals, and in the movie, you have this hedge maze, which I have to say, whatever you like, that's fine, but me personally, I love the hedge maze, because I think it's badass. I think it's a cool image, um, and, and it feels like, uh, I don't know, something about it, there's a realism to it, and... Maybe it's because when I was a kid, I played Castlevania 64, and... Uh, I love that game,
2: yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> they had a hedge maze, remember? They did. God, it's
1: been like 25 years since
2: to I touched that game. Uh, that was
1: forever ago, man. Yeah. it's forever ago. But, uh, yeah, the hedge maze is fucking sweet. And uh, they've even got, like, a, a full-scale model of it inside the hotel. So, you, you get a weird scene. Like, I remember people have asked me, you know, when Jack looks over the, the hedge maze, is he actually looking at them? I don't think so. I think it's just the way they shot, you know, shot it, and they were just trying to make it look that way, but I don't think that's what they were going for.
2: No, I don't think that's what they were going for either, and the reason that Kubrick didn't use the uh, the topiary animals is because they, they were worried at the time there wasn't really, uh, according to them, a special effect that would have made it look plausible and, and doable, so... Uh, I should have asked my good buddy Steve about it when he was on the show a couple of weeks, you know, like three or four weeks ago because, uh, you know, he, he obviously you could tell that stuff's like CGI or computer-generated, at least in part, uh, in the 1997 miniseries. But, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting facts. But the Hedge Mage is creepy as shit. I mean, Todd, could you imagine getting lost in that? Because Alman says in the beginning, I wouldn't want to go in here unless I had an hour of despair and find my way out. That's creepy as hell, man.
1: That's very true. Um... yeah, fuck that, especially you know, it it obviously comes back later, but the hell with that I I wouldn't say I'm that good with mazes or anything like that anyway, and I'm probably too drunk too often, so I would fucking get lost and die like some people in this movie but, uh, (laughs) you know the the thing about it is, though I I had mentioned this, you know, when I was talking about people, uh, Jack especially you know, his mental state deteriorating here, um, the thing that makes, the, the thing that kind of crosses my mind is where you know, there are certain scenes where he's just sitting there staring at nothingness, or he's just doing things that are just out of character for anybody who's in their right mind, but one of the things that was like, I'm like, this guy is a fucking prick, which sometimes I feel this way is the bad part, is when she walks in she's she's being annoying, I'm not saying she's not, because she is an annoying fuck, but where Wendy's like uh, asking him, how's the book coming along, and he's like when when you hear me typing, that means I am working. That means leave me the fuck alone. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say that all the time, but I wouldn't. But sometimes I feel that way. But it, it would never work anyway, and I'd probably just get in trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is where you're. Like I said, this is where you're trying to. You're starting to figure out that dude ain't right in the head, and he doesn't give a fuck about anybody. And again. It, To me, I think, I mean, in this movie at least, he came here selfishly. I mean, there wasn't anybody else involved, and Wendy and Danny are just along for the ride. But every once in a while, every once in a while, it's really odd. Like, he'll have a sense of tenderness towards Danny, where it's like, is this legit, or is this him, I don't know, playing it up? So I'm not really sure, but. This, so shit's starting to hit the fan now. You know he's degenerated mentally. He, you can tell he's fucked, um, and and things are about to take a turn for the worse. Well, um, when the the thing that kind of sets the ball rolling in motion here is the Danny's ball rolls toward. There's this ball that rolls towards Danny as he he's playing with his toys, and it looks like it came from an open door of room what two thirty seven, and of course Danny goes in. So right at the same time you hear uh or Wendy comes running from the basement cuz you hear Jack screaming and uh you know he's having a nightmare and and he starts telling her that uh he basically killed them both he he chopped Danny and her to pieces and uh before she she can even react Danny kind of walks out of that uh the other end of the room and again and let me just explain again, this hotel is massive, okay, so this room that I'm talking about, it, we're talking about, I, I can't even describe to you how big it is, but it, you know, it's a room with echoes and everything else, and I think this type of thing is what added to the cat fever aspect of it, but... Um, you know, so Danny, you know, he comes into this room. He looks kind of out of it. He's sucking his thumb. And, and, and Wendy's talking to him a few times, but Danny's just not responding to it. Uh, she comes up closer to him, and his sweater's all ripped, and there's bruises on his neck. And uh, he doesn't answer when she's trying to talk to him. And right off the bat, she starts accusing Jack, which I guess that's pretty fucking understandable. Who else would have done it, right? <laughs> I felt bad for old poor Jack here. Cause he, he, uh, let's let's get on the same page here. Because later on we find out that it, it wasn't Jack, right? So we're all on the same page with this. Jack didn't do it, right? It was this crazy bitch.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Or whatever the hell she was. Yeah. She looks like a fucking witch is what she looked like. But anyway. Oh, yeah, like a phone with the nose and the hair. It's all stringy. Absolutely. Yeah, oh. so Jack... Jackson, in there. He's, like, confused and, like, doesn't know what the fuck to think. But, you know, once once they leave the room, he starts getting pissed. And, and I thought this is one of those scenes. And, again, I, I try not to grade acting too much. But I thought this was one of those scenes where his acting was awesome. Because if you've ever been pissed off, and I know both of you have had those moments, because it seems like Blake's having one of those moments today. And Jen and I are both in mourning over the Broncos loss yesterday. So I'm sure both <laughs> of us had that moment yesterday where you kind of take it in. And it, it slowly builds in your head. You start getting more and more pissed, and by the end of it, you want to bust a bottle over somebody's head.
3: <laughs> and that's yep. what
1: Jack's doing here. Like, he's building himself up and getting more and more pissed, and I love the acting here. I just do. I, I love Jack Nicholson, but even more so in just these scenes where he's, like, I, I don't know, coaching himself to be even more angry about what just happened. What do you think, like
2: Oh, yeah. It, I mean, you can definitely see it with, you know, the, the change within him and that that huh, he's just, like, just barely, you know, on the edge or just losing his total fucking shit. And, yes, I, I've been in those moments. It's usually when I strap on a guitar, put my headphones on and set about composing so that I don't fucking run outside and just fucking, I don't know, hit something, sometimes a tree or whatever. I've never heard a person, but Jesus, man, sometimes I'm just like, fucking, this is, everybody around me is fucking stupid. It's like, I'm surrounded by fucking idiots. I need to get away from them, you know? So that's, he exercised that a little bit differently than me, but I love the realism. Jack Nicholson is a class act. I mean, (laughs) uh, he just, he he brings that to every role. I mean, even when he was the Joker, he was very, very believable, you know?
1: Yep. Uh, And Jack's uh, drinking problem comes back around here now because, you know, Jack, he's so pissed. He's just kind of storming around the hotel just mad as shit, getting himself – like I said, it feels like he's pumping himself up for something, uh, which in a lot of ways he is. Because he's basically pumping himself up to do the wrong thing, which we've all been there. So, you know, he makes his way into this gold ballroom which seems to have a sign out front like there's a party or something going on in there. And he comes in there, it's completely empty in there. Except there's a bartender. And this is where we know that I, I don't know, he has crossed over into the realm of the supernatural at this point. And uh uh you know, he he's sitting on the bar, you know, with his head in his hands and He's like, I, I'd sell my soul for a drink. Excuse me, I've got this backwards. We didn't have a bartender yet until he said he'd sell his soul for a drink. And then we get the bartender who, what, serves him that drink. And, we again, we get more good dialogue here between these two. And um, it, it, What's interesting is Jack's not even surprised by this guy, you know. Uh, and he calls him Lloyd. It's like they've known each other forever. It's really weird, isn't it? It is. Very weird. And, of course, Jack tells the story of when he accidentally injured uh, Danny years ago. And, it's, you know, it goes back to the issue of, yeah, he didn't mean to, but, you know, it all boils down to the fact that he couldn't control his drinking and he couldn't control his temper. And look what happens. You can't blame it all on the alcohol. It's just sometimes that's who you are. You know what I mean? It just came out. I mean, that's what it seems like. But he had quit drinking, and now he's obviously he's off the wagon. So um,
2: Relapsing, yes, sir.
1: Yep, and this is, you know, again, where shit's truly starting to hit the fan. So, um, Wendy Wendy finally enters, and and she's like, uh, you know, Danny, Danny, uh, Danny saw this crazy woman in the hotel with her in room 237, and Jack's like, are you fucking crazy? Like, he's just like, it's funny to me, how's he going to say, ask her if she's fucking nuts? And he's talking to an imaginary bartender. True. Which tells you how crazy he is, I think, at this point, right? Yeah.
2: Well, that, or he actually has the shining and doesn't realize it.
1: That'd be interesting, because it probably came from somewhere, right?
2: And I would think so, because uh, Halloran made a point earlier, he it in the book, too, that places are just places, but sometimes when something bad happens in a place, the environment of that place changes, and it it's like they, the, it has some kind of a almost like a, a genetic memory of the incident. So that's that's sort of why, I guess, he doesn't let himself be bothered by the uh, the ghosts and stuff because he knows that they are there, but only somebody, you, you know, that every place has them. When something bad happens, they become, you know, they just become part of that. And he just, you know his shining is so strong, I guess that he can ward him off. But you know Jack's shining, coupled with all that drinking and shit, and cabin fever, like you mentioned earlier, it just it makes him you know open for possession. And that's literally, I think, what what really happens to him in the grand scheme of things. He, he
1: becomes possessed. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is where this is where again things start to change for. Three different characters here, and Wendy's not one of them that that I'm thinking of exactly here. You got Jack going into room 237, and uh, it's kind of a tipping point for him, Danny, and Dick Halloran. And the reason for this, I'll get into in a minute. But while Jack's inside the room, Danny starts having a seizure in his own room, kind of similar to what he had earlier, but he doesn't black out. Um, While Dick who's in Florida right now with <laughs> with naked black chicks on his walls. I thought that shit was right in the Brazil. But that's Cooper for you, right? Right. So he seems to uh kind of pick up Danny's signal that he's uh giving out there. You know, he's I guess they're kind of linked here with that shining and um meanwhile like I said Jack enters 237, and he starts hearing noises from the bathroom, and um, you you kind of, you see this silhouette of somebody sitting in the tub, you get a a shower curtain, and then you get um, this woman uh, who's completely naked, She pulls back the shower curtain. She starts slowly stepping out of the tub. And it's this whole big sensual scene where he's just standing there. And if you watch his facial expression, first he's got this look of surprise, and then he's got this evil fucking cat that ate the canary grin just coming across his face. Again, more awesomeness from Jack Nicholson, I think. And the scene that fucking scared me as... I don't know if I was a kid when I first saw this, but I know this is the only scene in the movie that really fucked with me a little bit. Um, This is the part where she kind of approaches him. They kind of hug up, and they start kissing, right? And then Jack catches a glimpse of her in the mirror, and he sees the woman's actually this, like, rotting old woman corpse and he starts freaking out, and, and as he's, like, backing up, she's cackling all crazy and shit. Something about this scene weirded me out as a kid. It kind of reminded me of, like, Pet Cemetery with Zelda. Um, there's certain scenes in movies, like, the movie as a whole didn't scare me, but there's certain weird fucking scenes like this one that, that had an effect. And This was one of those, it was just weird as shit to this day. It, it, I even think it's weird as hell. Yeah,
3: I, I completely agree. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's weird in the book, too.
2: You get a lot more backstory. It's kind of tragic. You kind of feel bad for the woman. But then again, you kind of don't. So it's like, you know, it's playing on my emotions here,
1: you know. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, in, in the movie, they don't... This is one of the things about the movie, and I'm not complaining about it, and, again, we'll get into it later, but there's not a lot of explanations for things. But at the same time, it's like, I mean... It's still fucking creepy, and this woman was creepy, and her rotted ass, nasty body was creepy, and um, the fact that you've got this strong, even though he's not mentally strong, um, nutty ass character that's even recoiling in terror from her, uh, kind of tells you something uh, about just how scary that shit was. Anyway, we, we the next scene's weird to me because Jack just went through all that bullshit. I don't know if he's in denial or what the hell has happened here, but um, when he talks to Wendy, he tells her, you know, ain't nothing going on in room 237. And he says, you know, we need to take Danny to a doctor, or Wendy says that we need to take Danny to a doctor, and Jack, because Jack's basically saying that Danny made the whole fucking thing up, that he had to have done it to himself. And, of course, Wendy... I get the impression that she's not really buying that, but at the same time, she doesn't want to say that. She's trying to make excuses to get the fuck out of there. Do you guys get that, too? Oh, yeah. 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 Even though she hadn't started seeing things yet, I'm sure there's she's feeling some something there. I mean, you know how it is. I don't know. Okay, so I don't know what you all's feelings are on ghosts. I'm not a huge believer, but at the same time, there's certain places that you go... And they have a different feel to them than other places. And I feel like Wendy, even though she's not seeing it, she's probably feeling the weight of what has happened in this place. On top of the fact that her husband's a fucking loon. So, uh, whenever she's suggesting that Danny goes to a doctor, Jack's starting to get fucking pissed. I mean pissed. And he starts lecturing her on how it's always about you and that you know, she's responsible for everything that's gone wrong in his life, which I thought was kind of weird, because it seems like everything that's going on right now is because of him. I mean, them moving out here, all these things are because of him. But I guess he's kind of putting, I don't know, you know how it is when people do things that are wrong over and over again, they start blaming other people. He didn't want to take responsibility for his own actions. Classic
2: alcoholism symptom. I grew up with it. Never one to take
1: blame, always one to assign the blame. You know? Yep. Well, um, he's basically telling her, you know, I have an obligation to my employers, and you know, he's he's saying that, you know, I have to stay here. This is what I'm I'm supposed to do. And so he goes back to the gold room again. It's just him. This time though, we get it, it, he walks in and it's this big fucking party going on. We've got these guests dressed in 1920s, you know, fashion. Basically, I think tuxedos, or at least well-dressed. And uh, Lloyd's serving him a drink again, and and Jack's kind of mingling around. He uh, he didn't get far. Uh, A a butler, actually, carrying a tray, runs into him. He spills something all over his jacket, a a drink of some kind. And uh, the butler convinces Jack to go into the bathroom to clean up, and... The butler actually introduces himself in the bathroom as Delbert Grady, which was interesting to me because that wasn't his name earlier. It was Charles Grady. So why did they change the name? Middle
2: name. Charles oh, okay. Delbert.
1: So it Charles Delbert Grady?
2: He's probably still trying to show, not quite draw Jack into where he realized he was in the realm of what you call the supernatural. He's probably just being casual so that... Being friendly, so later on he could sucker his ass into doing whatever it was he wanted. So I've seen that happen before.
1: If I'm not mistaken, this bathroom—and I'm sure this was intentional—this bathroom was like red, the paint and stuff, and it seemed really out of place. But not for what Kubrick was doing, I'm sure.
2: Red is a color of anger and passion and blood.
1: There you go. (laughs) Yeah, well, you say that, and I'm starting to think Grady was about to go down on him, because he was a creepy-looking motherfucker himself, personally.
2: Uh, oh, he was having a, he was having a Lewis Carruthers moment, so let's just
1: say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, as, as when when Grady introduces himself, you get this, again, more Jack Nicholson awesomeness. You get Jack Nicholson's face, and, and he's, he's like, you ever talk to somebody when you know they're full of shit? And, like, you're just letting them say more things to prove that they're even more full of shit. And you're asking them the questions that you already know the answer to. Jen, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and basically, he's peppering them for information. But he knows he's full of shit, and he knows exactly who he is. He's like, um, you know, he's like, so uh, married man, are you, Mr. Grady? He's like, uh, yeah, yeah, um, in fact, uh, two daughters. And and, and he's like, so where are they? Are they around here somewhere? And, like, everything seems normal at first, but then it starts going to to hell because it gets real serious in tone where Grady kind of tells Jack that Jack's always been the caretaker, not Grady which, fuck, let's get into this later because I don't even know what to think of that. This is something that we're going to have to talk about after the movie gets done. But, you know, Jack's confused as shit, as am I, as I'm watching the movie. Uh, But, you know, he basically accepts Grady's story because, fucking, I mean, at this point, he's seen a witch come out of a tub. He's talking to a fantasy bartender. He's got a party going on. At this point, he's willing to believe anything. Dude's, you know, whatever it may be that's causing it, Jack's out of his fucking mind at this point. And Grady goes on to tell Jack that, you know, Danny has a great talent. By the way, what's up with everybody with a British accent in this movie? It's pretty far away from fucking England. How did everybody get out to Colorado in the 20s?
3: Because they're fucking fancy. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just
1: saying. Jen, do you know anybody with a a, a British accent out there?
3: Um, not in a long time, No. <laughs>
2: Well, in the film, the guy in the well, they don't talk about it in this movie, which is another problem I have with it, but they talk about it in the miniseries in the book. The guy who built the mansion had a, an English accent. He was from England. So mm. that's probably why you have some of these English accents, is there are probably people mm. that came over with with him. Well, to he, built, he was rich, extremely.
3: Well, and wasn't the maze, like, the mazes? Somewhere in England or something like that. So maybe they pulled actors from that area while they were filming those maze scenes. I don't know.
1: Maybe. I don't uh, know. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was weird, and like I, it, it's not something you really think about until you're like really trying to analyze this movie, like I was. Which, you know, you do something like you try to analyze analyze this movie too hard, you're gonna get yourself real fucking turned in a circle. But you know, I did my best. So. Um, you know, he, again, he's telling, you know, Jack that Danny has a great talent, and he's using it to bring an outside party into the situation. And this is where I'm like, oh, you shouldn't say that. He's like, a nigger, and I'm like, oh God, you can't say that. That's horrible. And Jack's like, yeah, and and I'm like, this is horrible. They're just being racist just because they can. And he tells, uh, you know, he he tells Jack how to correct Danny and how to correct Wendy if she interferes. And this, to me, is is another scene, as it goes along, that gets really fucking creepy, because he's, like, basically convincing Jack to do what needs to be done. And, you know, to me, it feels like this is the type of thing that probably goes on every day in our world, where it doesn't take that much to push somebody over the edge.
3: Not when you're already in that mental state where you're already that broken down, and Deteriorating just every moment of every day. Yeah, I can't. I can totally see that happening.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, it, it, and that's you know the type of thing that people do in our society or, or in life is they take advantage of the weak-minded and get them to do. Or, or, a lot of times, like when you think of terrorism or things like that, not to go too deep, but you know, you just take advantage of the weak-minded people that are going to do crazy shit on their own anyway, and you just guide them the way you want them to go, and that's pretty much what Grady's doing with Jack here, so it makes you wonder, you know, what the plan was all along, if that's kind of why he's come here, and we'll get into that later, again, I know there's some differences between the book and movie, and we'll have to, the the movie's so open to interpretation, but anyway, back in Florida, Dick has had no luck getting a hold of anybody at the Overlook Hotel, surprise, surprise, and, uh, he gets the next flight to Colorado, and i got to give Dick credit here, okay, and I, I, for being, I, I don't know, a good guy, because, you know, he knows something's up, obviously, because he's not stupid, and, you know, The Shining, uh, obviously, has some sort of power here between him and Danny. He knows something's not right, and the dude's willing to fly all the way back to Colorado to try to, you know, help with the situation, which... I don't know, it kind of tells you that, that he's one of the better people in this movie, for sure.
3: Well, and doesn't, um? don't they explain, like, either in the, I can't remember if they explain it in the movie or, or if it's just in the book, but isn't it, like, when they first meet each other, um, doesn't Doc, or, uh, I can't remember his name, but doesn't he tell Doc to be like, hey, if, if there's anything weird, you just send me something, like, you just think really hard And I will get it. Like, was that in the movie or was that only in the book? I can't remember. That was in
2: the the book. That was in the book. had in the miniseries, he told him that. He's like, if you need anything or something is wrong, if you're in trouble, Doc, call me. Tell me. Send me a signal. Just think really hard, harder than you ever can. And then he tries to think right there and show him.
1: And he busts Mm -hmm. one of the uh, lights. Yeah, Yeah. that's it. There you go. Glad you brought that up. Um, Because in the movie you don't get that as much. It's just one of those things where he just kind of takes his cue here. But meanwhile, back to the Overlook, Wendy gets herself a baseball bat and she's looking for Jack. And you know she's ready to get the fuck out of here because Jack's already lost his shit on her. She's done with it, and uh, she's going to take off with Danny, with or without Jack. And um, during her uh, search for old Jack, she uh, spots his manuscript next to the typewriter. And this scene is probably one of the most iconic scenes in any horror movie ever, and maybe any movie ever. And it's, and maybe not the scene itself, but so much as, you know, just the lines that are typed here, uh, or just what happens. She, she starts reading what he wrote, and basically it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of repetitions of a single sentence. And all it says is, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And I mean... That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know about how he's lost his fucking mind. How many times, even if you wanted to, how many times could you type something like that over and over again until that would make you lose your mind? It's like waterboarding.
3: Well, maybe, you know, it's something that he didn't even realize he was doing, you know, maybe it's just like a zoned out state where you're just not even there and you're just typing away like, I don't know, that's my take on it.
1: You know, it's interesting, too, because you make a good point, because whenever he da- is typing, he, he looks intent, and in then he's doing his work, um, but then at the same time, it's like when she sees it, and then he realizes she's, she's seen it, he almost knows that he's lost his mind, and he's okay with it. You know what I mean? And and But he's not okay with her knowing that she, he's lost his mind, and that's where he he decides, I mean, this is it. Now, you know, the game is on. It's time to fuck your world up, and it. it You know, he's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do to Mr. Grady. Yeah. So, you know, while she's reading it or whatever, he he kind of sneaks up on her and he's like, so how do you like it? And and she fucking freaks out, of course. And, you know, um, we get this confrontation between the two of them where he's kind of like slowly approaching her. And, again, he's coming up with these disturbing-ass lines like, uh, she's like, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. He's like, you're not listening to me. I didn't say, or he's like, he's like, uh, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your fucking brains in. And that is an amazing line, but also at the same time, completely, completely fucked up, right? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, because right before that he
2: says uh, she keeps striking at him with the the knife, and he's like, "Wendy, darling, light of my life," <laughs> you know. He keeps trying. It's like it's 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 so weird, like watching watching it happen. And uh, yeah, Jack Nicholson was really he was really a real treat to watch. And like I said, I wouldn't care so much if I hadn't read the book and think the
1: movie. You know, it's like cause, you know, I just wouldn't care. <laughs> I yeah. Book, so. Well. Wendy finally connects with one of these bat shots while Jack's kind of following her up these stairs. Jack, he takes a fucking tumble. It's a hell of a tumble. Um, He goes down uh, at least one good flight of stairs and and knocks him out. I mean, he's fucked up. I mean, you know, this is what you get in these movies. This is, I don't know when it started in in these horror movies, but, you know, in 1980, you get Jack going down the stairs. And, of course, you know he's not dead, but he's fucked up. And uh, he's hurt pretty bad, so Wendy... She starts dragging his limp body to a to the pantry, which has a lock on it. It's kind of lock. It's kind of like a um, it's kind of like the walk-in freezer, except of course it's not frozen. This pantry, and uh, uh, as she's dragging him in there, he's kind of like waking up. It, it's really a, another good scene where she's trying to get him in there as quick as possible before he really regains his consciousness, because he's waking up as she's dragging him and you know he's kind of drooling on himself because dude hit his head obviously and uh just as he she gets him in there he regains his consciousness and um she's locked him in right and he starts waking up and she says she's going to leave with danny and she'll be back right or you know she'll get help and he's like well i got a big surprise for you a big surprise why don't you go check the the radio and the snowcat of course we find out that what he sabotaged the radio and the snow cat. So they're pretty much stuck there. Yep. And what a dick he is because, you know, not only is he going to kill them, but he's making sure they can't get away. Yeah. So (laughs) let let me just say, Wendy uh, has more balls than I do, even though I think she's a, a stupid bitch because she goes to bed like why this dude's still locked in there something about it wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable even if I thought he was safely tucked away you know what I mean the dude just tried to kill you i'm not so sure that i could easily just go to sleep like she did no matter what the trauma was
3: yeah i don't i think she's i don't know like to me she's also not there and i think you know she's a little codependent and she's very I don't, I, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I just think that she's so beaten down. At least in the movie's portrayal of his behavior and how that behavior increases in the hotel, that she thinks, yeah, these weird things don't mean anything because she's not necessarily seeing them. You know, he's going to be just fine in the pantry. He'll sleep it off, and he'll be fine in the morning. Maybe I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's the same thing. The same thing a woman will say to her alcoholic husband who continues to beat the shit her on a regular basis. And, oh, it's just, he'll be fine tomorrow. And, you know, just, I don't know, just let, basically, doing the disease's job for her, you know, for itself, you know, somebody that is so codependent, even when, like you said, he's trying to kill one of his own, and his kid, too, you know. And she's like, well, it'll, you know, it'll all clear up. We're just going through a bad patch. And just, oh, I just can't stand her character. Like I said, in the book, she has way more gall and fortitude. I really love her in the book, but I can't stand... I love her in the miniseries. I just
1: can't stand her in the movie. Fuck. You know, and um, on top of that, it seems like she almost... I don't know. She... I don't know what it... Until he finally chops through that door with an axe, which we'll get into later, I don't know what the fuck it was going to take to get her to the realization that he's just, like, beyond... I don't know. He's never going to come back to what he was. You know, he's gone. He's over the edge. He ain't coming back. So y'all make a good point. Um, but while Jackson, that pantry, you know, he, he wakes up because he hears Delbert Grady talking. And, uh, again, this is a few hours later. We're not sure how long he's been in there, but I guess he's been in there long enough to take a fucking nap. Um, you know, good thing he woke up from it. Get a good enough concussion. You ain't getting up. But, uh, Grady basically is telling them that they're disappointed in him. And whoever they are, you can kind of uh, figure out on your own, but um, that they don't really have a great deal of confidence in Jack. But Jack assures them that he can get the job done if he gets one more chance. And this is where, okay, it, it goes from Jack's just seeing shit possibly to we know for a fact that the supernatural has true power Um, Because the pantry door then suddenly becomes unlocked, which Jack didn't do with his fucking mind. It didn't just magically happen. Something opened that pantry. That's what I always think of. This is, to me, where it shows that the supernatural in this house truly has, like, legs.
2: Yeah. It does. It's real. I mean, halfway that's the beautiful thing about, one of the beautiful things about the film is that you halfway through, you're like, I don't know, is this, is he imagining all this? Or is he really just, you know, or is any of this really happening by this point? It's mm-hmm. totally for sure that there's something going on because, like you said, that was an industrial grade block. He had hurt him. He had been hurt and wasn't fully cognizant. He was awake and aware, but he wasn't fully cognizant. And he didn't have the strength to uh, open that. So, yeah, that's how you know they're the dark forces guiding him, you know, through his his job, since he's always been the caretaker.
1: You know, and and on top of all that um, is that okay? So the the only other thing that may be proof that there is actually a supernatural force, and I don't mean just what they're seeing and things like that, is Danny's injury, which you could still try to write off to Jack, even though I didn't think it was him. You know, that was the only other thing that you really had up to this point. But now you don't have any other reason unless you think, I don't know, Danny let him in somehow. Obviously, he didn't. But, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. But, like I said, Wendy's stronger than me because she went up there and fell asleep, which, fuck that, I wouldn't do. Um, So, you know, while she's asleep, Danny's in this trance. And, again, we get another iconic scene where Danny's carrying this knife around muttering, Red Rhyme! Red Rhyme! And he takes Wendy's lipstick and he writes red rum on the bathroom door. And, you know, obviously anybody who's ever seen the movie, anybody who uses common sense knows that red rum put in a mirror spells out murder. And uh, back, you know, obviously in reverse, it it spells out murder. So at that instant, you start hearing this banging sound coming from the door. And I don't think it's obvious until you really pay attention to these things. Like it's a giant room you know, filled with other rooms. So, basically, it's like its own living area. And then, like, Jack's trying to get through the main living area door, and they're in the bedroom. So, they kind of, you know, take off to the uh, to the bathroom to get the fuck away from him as Jack goes apeshit with this axe to get through the uh, the door. So, Jack chops the way, his way through the front door, and he's like, Wendy, I'm home. And there's another... See, this is where Jack, again, earning his fucking money in this movie, and this is where he's so awesome. Danny, Daddy's home. And Jack, you know, and he walks up to the bathroom door like nothing's going on, starts knocking on it, just nice and polite. And uh, Wendy's, you know, holding that knife and trying to steady herself. As Jack, he starts chopping this door down. This is the bathroom door. And she gets gets Danny to go out the window, but even though she's as skinny as a fucking twig, she can't get through the window, which I found unbelievable, because she could probably fit through a fucking keyhole. That chick needs to eat a sandwich. They had enough food in this place. You think she could have ate some of it? It's not like she had anything to do. (laughs) I'm just saying. Scrawny ass. So, Jack starts chopping that door down, and again, iconic scene coming up after he chops down you know, one of the panels he sticks his head through. And probably the most iconic part of the movie, the here's Johnny scene, so Jack sticks his hand through the gap to turn the lock and she slashes she slashes him with a knife, which she just slashes him. If it were me, I would have put that knife right through his hand. But again, not exactly the strongest female character we've ever seen. Um, so he he's like, Oh and he freaks out. So, you know, uh he basically chops uh, away at the door, but she gets away. Uh, uh, or, Well, she doesn't get away, actually. She's still in there while he's trying to chop through it, and he hears that, that snowcat engine, and he leaves. I guess she's still in there, right? I mean, am I wrong here? She's still in the bathroom. He hasn't yeah. quite chopped so, his way through, and Dick, or Dick Halloran shows up, right, and he leaves the bathroom. Right,
2: because he hears the snowcat, and he knows that he's... He broke. There's no cat, but he hears another one, so that's how he
1: knows that somebody's there. I'm surprised he didn't just finish the job on Wendy and then go deal with that. But such is life. This is a horror movie. There doesn't have to be a whole. And plus, he's nuts, so it really doesn't matter. We don't he's need a whole eye girl.
2: She's just not the best final girl there. No. Not the best.
1: No, but I, I do have some nice things to say that I'll get into in a bit, which is surprising because I want to see her with an axe in the face, really, really bad. We may get that, but I doubt it. So, the snowcat driver, of course, is Dick, Um, and inside the hotel, he calls out, but he didn't get a reply, and this is the only really scene of murder in the whole movie, you know, Jackie's kind of hiding behind a pillar, he pops out of nowhere, and he swings the axe into his chest, and it was a fucking great swing, because he hits him, like, right in the heart, and... I don't know, something about this scene's really kind of horrifying. You know, I've seen people get killed with an axe before, and it's no more violent than any other scene, but it's almost like his death was just more uncomfortable to watch than a lot of death scenes. You know what I mean? And maybe because we care about him, because he's actually a good, decent guy, you know?
2: Yeah, I think part of it is Scatman Crothers' face, like his facial expressions. He was in several them. Movies. He was in a movie with Robert England called Stay Hungry, where I had uh, Jeff Bridges and uh, Schwarzenegger, it. he made a lot of those same kind of faces. He's a very expressive person in the mm-hmm. face. Like I feel uncomfortable watching him have his visions. Well, you know, he's when it's when Shining, when he's laying in bed with the naked chicks up above the bed on the painting. He has those visions. His face, just it's, it's the face, man. It's, it's it's the expressions. That's what makes it so horrifying to watch because he lays there knowing if his chest has been caved in with a fucking axe. And you just you hate it. You fucking
1: just don't even want to look at it, you know? Jen, are you a fan of Fight Club?
3: I am, <laughs> yes. I thought so.
1: <laughs> See, this is how well I know you. Okay, so I'm a huge fan of Fight Club, too. And, you know, one of the things that I actually think of is that, you know, the scene where, uh, in Fight Club I'm referring to, uh, where Edward Norton's character beats the shit out of Jared Leto's character. Uh-huh. And... Um, originally they, they were going to show just scenes of him beating the shit out of him and his face getting destroyed, but they changed it to showing people's reactions of it. And and they decided that was even more effective than him just, them just showing him getting his face beat in. You know, them showing Danny's reaction to, uh, Dick Halloran getting hit with that axe. And him screaming, I think that might have been the same kind of concept here. I think it was just as effective as, you know, showing the gore and the whole nine yards where you get Danny's reaction to it and how freaked out he is by this. I mean, because this is just a little kid. So I don't know. That's my connection there. And, you know, just the thought process there. I thought I thought it was effective as hell. And, you know, it's something that I, I didn't appreciate until later in life because, you know, uh, I'm a gore hound. I like gore, and, and we did get a little bit there, but we didn't need it. It was just exactly what it needed to be. So Danny, when he screams out, you know, uh, this this kind of gives Jack the idea of where Danny's hiding, which he was in a kitchen cabinet. And uh, so uh, he gets out of his steel cabinet, and he runs outside, and Jack's after him, and, you know, I told you Jack was fucked up by this fall. He's fucked up his ankle somehow, which, you know, you fall down some stairs, that's going to happen. He's fucked up his head, he's fucked up his ankle, and uh, Wendy's gotten herself together to go look for Danny, and she's, she starts finally getting the supernatural encounters now. Um, She she runs into some ghosts, (laughs) uh, (laughs) one of which, I I think she sees the twins at one point, point. But also, you know, she sees the river of blood from the the hotel. But the the thing, and I have to get you all's opinion on this, the bear with its ass out blowing the guy in the hotel room. Is this completely out of place or is it effective because of how fucking bizarre, weird it was?
3: I totally forgot about that
1: scene. Blake, what do you think?
2: Repeat that again. I have, some, uh, I have
1: some turbulence in my line here. That's all good. Okay, so you know the part where Wendy's starting to see the supernatural visions that uh, uh-huh. you know only Jack and Danny had seen up to this point? Well, she, one of the visions are the fucking bear with its ass out blowing the guy in, like, the suit it, randomly in the hotel room. Now, I've heard people say that this is, like, completely out of place, takes him out of the movie. It's not creepy. But at the same time I've heard other people say that it's so fucking weird and out there that it is creepy. I'm not really sure how to feel about it other than it's just weird.
2: It 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 is weird, but again, there were things like that going on back then. But like I said, especially in the uh <laughs> the Hollywood days where people kept quiet about their you know, their sexual aversions and perversions and things that they did and just the random the random the randomness of that just I think basically why it was put in there was, one, because Kubrick, you know, if you ever saw Eyes Wide Shut, you know that this is the first time he's done some weird shit, you know, in a film. Uh, but um, it just I think it, it just sort of is like a social commentary on how, we've talked about it before with other movies, it's like everything looks so pleasant and beautiful on the outside, but it's so ugly and decrepit and horrible on the inside. It's like what what our truth is versus what the actual truth is. You know, so it's that's sort of how I see it. it you know, it's creepy, but by, by all means, it's just, it's just they're crazy. Like the house is crazy, is making people crazy. So it just they're seeing all kind of weird shit.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I mean, it, and it was weird, but I don't know, man. It's just fucking bizarre. I don't know how to explain it any other way. So, um, she, it, that doesn't stop her. Good for her. She's trying to go save her kid. However possible, which I think she does a shit job because really at the end of the day, other than getting him out the window, she doesn't do much to save him. But anyway, Jack's after Danny, and they go into the hedge maze. Danny has an advantage here. Danny's been in the hedge maze. He's explored the hedge maze, and we know he has The Shining, so I guess he has some sort of foresight along with him. Um, So, you know, Danny's starting to realize as he's going through this hedge maze that he's leaving a trail of footprints for Jack to follow. And uh, he starts retracing his steps. Smart kid, good for him, and he's setting, you know, footholes that he created, and then he kind of hides behind the hedge. And Jack sees the footprints have disappeared, so he's not sure what to do. Um, but he, realized, he doesn't realize Danny's hiding, so he chooses, you know, one way or another. He picks a path, and he starts trying to chase after Danny. So Danny comes out of hiding and uh, follows his own footprints back to the maze's entrance. So smart guy, Danny, I'm proud of you, kid. Wendy makes her way to, out of the hotel. Uh, just as Danny gets the fuck out of this maze, And let me just explain again. Jack's all fucked up. He's hurt his his head already. He's exhausted from chasing this kid around with a fucked up ankle. And he's not able to find his way out of the edge maze, basically. He he can't figure his way out. And he's getting tired. He's exhausted. He's freezing. And um, (laughs) Wendy does the uh, typical horror movie thing before Danny uh, comes and hugs him hugs her, she throws her knife down. Because that's what you do, right? As a woman in a horror movie at the time, you throw the knife down. It makes me think of 1978 Halloween. Jamie Lee Curtis threw that fucking knife down repeatedly, didn't she? Yeah. Goddamn. So, Jack, you know, he's like, I'm coming for you, Danny. Of course, by this point, it's too late. But uh, Jack, you know, he lets out this blood-curdling shriek from the maze and you know, Danny and Wendy, they get the fuck out of there, in the snowcat that Dick had, he had left at the hotel, and Jack, you know, he's pretty much lost in the maze, he can't get out, and, well, to be honest with you, he froze to death, it, it, it shows another scene of him, he's sitting there, he's just a fucking popsicle at this point, and the look on his face is, I, I don't know, it kind of describes it, you have to see it, know what I'm talking about. And to me, this is the weirdest part of the whole movie, even more weird than the bear blowing the uh, the, uh, weird guy, the other guy in the tux in that room. Right before the end credits, the audience, you know, us, we get to see a photograph of a lavish ball, which is hanging in the hotel. And the center of the picture is a young Jack and the caption reads, Overlook Hotel, July 4th, Ball, 1921. So... Before we get into any other things, does anybody care to uh, explain that last scene? Because I don't feel like it's ever been truly explained by anybody, like, effectively.
2: Ken, well, you can take a stab at it if you want
1: to. Uh,
3: You know, for the photograph, to me, I think it's just... I look at it as another way of, like, the supernatural forces coming out and saying hi and being like, hey, you were here before and you were always here and now this is proof, again, of that. Um, that's kind of how I've always read it, you know, and I don't know.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Blake? <laughs> I, I've
3: got some thoughts, um, I so.
2: know it's not like that in the in the novel. There is no scene like that. He was never there, but... You know, outside of outside of that particular time, but I just think it was a way for you to show that it was reincarnation. Basically, he was reincarnated, almost like in the film, he was so evil because you know, right at the beginning, you know, he was so fucking evil and like just sinister that the uh, <clears throat> the uh, the uh, hotel, you know, and the possession and everything sort of just brought the evil so much that it just it spread. And whether or not that actually was true it's almost like that's the truth that we're presented with because it's the truth that the house, that the hotel wants us to see because the hotel is really in charge. Even at the very end, the hotel is still still the one that comes out on top. It's still sinister. It's still evil. It's still caused all this problem. So we get the truth. That the hotel wants us to see, and the truth it wants us to see is that Jack has always been the caretaker there. Which they referenced that that line multiple times, and according to them, you know he was. I mean, if you, you know, there's also other things that point to that too. You know, it's 1921 on that wall with those with that picture. There are also 20 other pictures, so there's 21 photos. And then there's 20, he was there in 1921. And then Danny's jersey is 42, which is 21 and 21. You know, so it's just like the numbers. It's it's fuck like the movie. will make you go fucking star crazy, like going and thinking about all the different shit that, that all of it could uh, really mean. And you know, as far as the 237, you know, with all that stuff, a lot of people think that Cooper staged the uh, first moon landing and the distance mm-hmm. from the earth. The moon is 237,000 miles. So, again, it's just, just like a, pl- a plethora of shit for people to just discuss. But I think that's what it was. It was the truth that the uh, that the hotel wanted us to see. Okay, uh, they do mention, you know, that it was built on an Indian bear ground, a- as you do, of course, you know, build shit on mm-hmm. something that's supposed to be sacred, a pet cemetery, you know, uh, yes. <laughs> geist, It's just build shit where
1: it's not supposed to be. Fuck it, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, that's what I think of, too. And you know what, I actually... Have you all ever seen, and I'm sure you have, but I'm going to ask anyway, have you seen the House on Haunted Hill remake? The one from, like, on 98... Rush? 99, yeah. 99. Yeah, Jeffrey okay. Rush and Bridget Wilson, I think?
2: Right. Yes. Right. Yes, right. So
1: at the end of the movie, basically, um, uh, Jeffrey Rush's character, Stephen Price and his wife had kind of become one with the hotel's past because it shows the footage of them kind of getting raped and, and murdered in the hotel, like before they're even alive. So basically they've become one with the, the, you know, with the hotel or the asylum, or at least that's what it was at the time, in the house on Haunted Hill. So I kind of think of that. That's what happened here with Jack is that he wasn't there all along, but he, but after the events of what happened here, the, the hotel kind of, took him, you know what I mean, the supernatural influence took him, you know what I mean, and he became one, or he became part of the hotel's path at that point, which um, I realize may not make a lot of sense on paper, but then again, near to bears blowing people on beds and stuff, so I don't know what to tell you about that, but I, I can tell you this, I love this fucking movie, and and I, before I get into uh, my thoughts on it, I'll let Jen go first because she is our guest. She's she's one that doesn't get to join us every single week. So Jen, I'll let you talk about the movie, your thoughts on the movie, and then throw out four out of four, one out of four, two out of four, three out of four, whatever you may you know whatever it may be for your rating on the movie.
3: Um, You know, on its own, I actually dig the movie, Uh, you know, comparing it to the book, I can see where Stephen King has his issues and doesn't like the movie and doesn't like the documentary. Uh, I get all of that. But I myself am just a fan of Stanley Kubrick in general. So I completely dig the movie all by itself. Uh, So I would definitely give it at least a three out of four and on a really good day a four out of four. (laughs)
1: Fair enough. How about you, Blake? Uh,
2: you know, as it's as it's a standalone piece, as she was saying, I was thinking the exact same thing. She she's got the shining. She read my mind. Um <laughs> uh I was thinking the same thing as a standalone piece, it's wonderful. So as stand alone, I'd probably give it, honestly. Probably probably a three out of four, Freddy Call, uh, on its own. But since I've seen the you know, read the book and seen the miniseries the way it was supposed to be done, In that context,
1: i probably have to give it, you know, a two out of four. Well, it's really interesting for me, because this is the only Stephen King book that I actually like the movie better than. I like... But maybe that's because I saw the movie first, okay? And this would be true of, like, Jaws. I like the movie a hell of a lot better than I do the book. Uh, I saw the movie first. I I didn't read Peter Bichley's Jaws until much later. But... um. You know, I prefer an axe over a uh, uh, what is it? What did he use in the book? Well, he had something in the book, right? Wasn't it a, a, a mallet or something?
2: It was a mallet, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, fuck that. That's not scary to me. That's didn't cut it for me. And I understand. Okay, if I had read the book first, I'd probably feel completely different. But I mean, but to be fair, at the end of the day, this movie really was all about one thing. And to me, this person carried it all the way to four machetes out of four for me if it wasn't for jack nicholson maybe this movie wouldn't have half the power it did but at the end of the day he was so amazing in this movie and so fucking good that i have no choice but to give it four out of four and in fact as i said on our you know when we ranked our top five stephen king movies this is my favorite stephen king movie even if it's not true to the book I don't care. I think it's better than the book. I think Kubrick took this, and he made it a better movie than the book actually is. Now, maybe I'm a little biased because I saw the the movie first. Funny story for you all. I actually watched this movie, and I don't remember if this was the first time I saw it, but it's the time I remember. I watched this movie in psychology class when I was, like, 14 years old, my freshman year in high school. And uh, it was pretty weird that they showed me this movie in high school, um, especially freshman year, but um, it it didn't really have that much of an impact on me at the time and maybe didn't the second time or so. I didn't think it was that fantastic. It was fine, but it didn't have the type of influence on me that it does now, you know, and maybe I just wasn't mature enough to understand it or, or whatever it may have been. I thought it was slow and kind of boring back then. Obviously it's, you know, growing and growing on me, and now I love it. I give it four out of four. It's one of my favorite movies, period. In fact, it's one of my favorite views in the, you know, um, I guess winter months, and that's why we're doing it in December, even though for some odd reason it's not cold at all here for some fucking reason. It's stupid, yeah. but it's starting to cool off finally. But anyway, um, I, did we had this issue last year, too, when we talked about the thing. It wasn't that cold like I wish it was. But anyway, I love watching The Shining during the winter season. Um, I don't really watch it around Halloween so much as I do around, you know, the the cold months because I feel like it's kind of that type of movie. Um, and I just love it, and I think it's great. But, you know, to your point about Shelley Duvall, let me just say, Wendy is an annoying bitch, and I wanted to see her get an axe in the face. But at the same time, let me just say... Shelley Duvall's portrayal of her, it almost feels like she's exactly what she needed to be in this movie. It's almost like, I don't know, being a hysteric psycho, it kind of added to the terror of the movie because... or I don't mean a hysteric psycho, a a hysteric moron kind of added to this movie because it's like, if you had somebody that had their shit together, it wouldn't feel as uh, bleak and, um, like... I, I don't know. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it would feel like there's a way out, and because she was such a moron, and she just didn't seem to have her shit together, it seemed like there was no way out, and you know, it, obviously, Danny was the one, at the end of the day, that really saved everybody.
2: Yeah, he he is, and it's that way the book, the book primarily focuses a lot on uh, Danny, and you know, the way the relationship with his, with his father goes, and as far as you're talking about the mallet, I can see what you're saying, being a die-hard Gorehound, I am too, but something about taking an item that's not normally thought of as scary and making it scary, like one of those heavy-ass croquet mallets, those things are terrible. You You could crush somebody's skull. I've seen skull fractures done with that, where people have like Died and, and just, it just it just it fucks them up, man. And it's just that's scary to be taking something that's not normally uh, thought of—not like razor-fingered gloves or chainsaws or fucking you know a, a scythe or a pickaxe or anything like that. It's just it's so random. It's okay now, you know. Just I've
1: uh. I've had this debate with Stephen King fans, like hardcore Stephen King fans, and I love Stephen King. I'm not saying I don't. Um, and Stephen King purists you know, obviously they go with the book. I go with the movie because I'm not necessarily a Stephen King purist. I won't sit here and try to tell you that, you know, that I read books all the time. I don't. I don't have the time for it. And to be honest, I'm pretty lazy human being. <laughs> I, and I can't sit around and I just read a book. I'd love to. I just can't. So um, to be fair, like, I try to judge a movie usually on its own merit, and I don't try to say, well, the book was better or or this or that because it's like, yeah, but you can't make a book into a movie for real. I mean, it's too hard to do. There's just too much shit that you can't get into that well. I mean, I know there are some that obviously have been effective. But, like, okay, so another thing that I actually like better about the movie is I prefer the hedge maze over the hedge animals because the hedge animals feel like kind of a ridiculous concept. And, and you, you can't – that's another thing that you – and this is a, a problem with some Stephen King things – there, there are some things in it where they had a hard time kind of translating the film, um, and they had that issue with The Shining too. You know, the miniseries, which I want you to get into, Blake. Talk a little bit about the miniseries. And Jen, I know you've seen it as well. So if yes, oh, no, I feel The Shining. No, I actually
3: haven't. I've never seen the miniseries, and I'm oh. out, I just found no. I just found what? out about it like a week ago. I didn't even know it existed. So I'm like a total miniseries
1: Shining virgin. I have to see it. I haven't either. Well, I haven't either. I know it's more true to the book but I have not seen it.
2: That's awesome, Jen. I definitely, you know, recommend it. Um I saw it I saw the miniseries when I was about eleven or twelve, right about the time that it came out. Um and I really liked the mini series. I had read bits and pieces of the book at the time, but I hadn't read the whole complete thing. But seeing the mini series and the way everything's portrayed, Travis, you said you have trouble Translated things coming from a book to a movie, I will put it this way. Out of everything I have seen, there are only three Stephen King films that have been translated damn near perfectly from books. The Shining miniseries, The Green Mile, and The Mist. That's the only three that I've seen that have been translated damn near perfect. And as far as the miniseries goes, um it's great. It's, you still get a lot of the same things. Like, you get the car came out, obviously. You get the uh, the naked dead woman, which... Uh, the reason I'm so connected to that film is a good buddy of mine was on a show a few weeks ago, uh, Steve Johnson. He does a lot of uh, special effects makeups and uh, applications and stuff. And he actually won an Emmy for his uh, prosthetic makeups for this particular uh, miniseries. And he's done a couple others. He did the Langoliers, and he also did uh, Stand, and um, both of those are fantastic. But the, the miniseries is more like the books. You get to see more of that intrinsic relationship between Danny and his uh, father. And you get to see more of Dick and He lives, obviously. And you find out a little bit about Tony, which you don't find out very much in the book. Tony, is short for Anthony, uh, Danny's middle name is Anthony. Danny Anthony Torrance. So in the, in the book, much like it is in the miniseries, Tony is Danny's older self, like a 16-, 17-, 18-year-old self, and he's what guides him through uh, these situations and comes back, you know, obviously you see him groan in Dr. Sleep, and he's going through some of the same problems. Um, you know, that his dad had. But the miniseries is fantastic. That and the, the, the ending, the ending in the book, I think, is super awesome. It's a little outside of what I would consider a Stephen King ending. You know, the fucking hotel goes up. And he doesn't dump the, you know. But there's this pivotal scene. It's the best scene in the, the in the miniseries. At the end, where Jack uh, regains a little bit of his self back. and He tells Danny, run away, son, but always remember I love you and just run as far away as you can. Don't stop until you're away from this hotel. And right as the demon or the the, uh, spirit takes back over, you know, Jack one last time, he's like, what do you think you're going to do to me, you damned little pup? What do you think you can really do? Well, what do you know? And he said, I know my daddy didn't dump the boiler today. And right as he goes to turn, the, the little boy runs, Danny runs away, and like a few seconds later, the whole fucking hotel goes up, like fucking Michael Bay style, fucking shit blows in every fucking way, bricks and mortar and towers, and it's just a huge explosion, and it's, it's beautiful, I recommend you both to sit down and watch it, it's long, it's, I have it, it's three discs, so it's very long, that's probably why it's a little bit more like the book, because the book is extremely long, um, I've read a lot of Stephen King, and it's one of the longest Stephen King books I've ever read. I never finished yet. It's the longest I've ever seen. It's like a thousand one hundred and eighty-one pages or some shit. It's way too long for me to. Young kids, I can read a six or seven hundred page book easy, but that eleven hundred, I just I can't do it right now.
1: Yeah, I hear you. Um, You know, uh, you brought up a good point, and this is something that I, I might as well talk about, Tony you know, and, you know, whatever the fuck Tony was, that's interesting that it's more elaborated, which I'm not surprised that it is. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, it really depends. You know, it. it and again, this is obviously an apples to oranges comparison, but at the same time, I kind of think about it like this. Certain people hate the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween because he fleshes out Michael Myers' backstory so much and you get more information on things. And some people will tell you, that you know Michael Myers is scarier without that backstory. I like the backstory. I wouldn't sit here and tell you I prefer the backstory um just because I grew up on the original Halloween. I love the original Halloween, but I do like the remake, and I do like the backstory other than maybe the redneck part of it. But you know, uh with Tony um, it is good that they give that backstory in the book, and it's cool that they do, but at the same time like in the movie, it's almost like I didn't even need it. it. It is nice that they had it. There are certain things that like, it's like I wonder about this and I wonder about that when it comes to the movie, but at the same time I'm like, but do I really need to know that? At the same time I'm like, no, I don't. And I think that's what adds to the movie for me is that there's this mystery surrounding so many things about it and they're not elaborated on and why I feel like it'd be nice if they elaborated on on, um, excuse me for slurring, but anyway, I just think it's like it's like the movie's so good without it even being elaborated on. I don't know. That's just my my feeling on it. And again, I'm biased because I love the shit out of the movie. So.
3: Well, and I think you can't, you know, the people that are purists, and I admit I am one of those people where I will totally be like, no, the book was way better, and and of course the books tend to be better because they do they have the ability to be more detailed and you get to use your own imagination and you know bring your yourself into that story and you know i mean there's no way that you can really make all of these books into movies unless you do do the mini series sort of thing with every single book or whatever because i mean there's just too many details so at some point you just kind of have to suck it up and enjoy the movie for what it is and, mm-hmm. you know, go from
1: there. You know, I have a trump card for anybody that says book. the book is better than the movie for any movie, for any book even. Um, the book only, you know, the book would take me many, many hours and the movie only took me two. That's my, <laughs> that's my trump card. <laughs> it only took me two and I was able to get through it and move on with my life and then I can think about it for days and days at a time and fill in the blanks for myself. But no, I do enjoy books. I'm not saying I don't. So I don't think that I'm like, bashing books or anything like that it's just it's one of those things where it's like if you tell me i can watch five movies in the span of 10 hours or i can read one book i'll take the five movies and yeah i know <laughs> they're not as good as the book but at the same time i would just rather spend my time doing that and i guess maybe it's because I, I just love movies you know
2: well you
3: and i both
1: love oh go ahead <laughs>
2: Although, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to so You and I both love movies, but again, I was always a reader growing up because to me it, it made a lot of sense. It was almost more exciting for me to imagine something being fleshed out than to actually see somebody else's interpretation because sometimes it's a lot more fun to make your own, you know. But I see what you're what you're saying. I've seen... Thousands of movies, and you know, I'm. I would with kids. It's easier to watch a movie, but you know, last year I sat and read six Stephen King books back to back that I'd never read before, and mm-hmm. I can trade that experience in for the world. You know, I'm hoping they make a Gerald's game. Uh, yeah, fucking sexual, disturbing shit. You know, mm,
1: that, bo- that, that book is the most recent Stephen King book that I've read. I know. I, and I don't mean by order of when they came out. I just mean I had never read it until a few years ago, and I read it, and I was like, holy shit, this was amazing. But anyway, Jen, sorry, you go ahead and chime in.
3: Oh, no, I was basically just going to say the same thing. Like, yes, I'm a bookworm and all that stuff, and I, but I do thoroughly enjoy movies. And sometimes it is just nice to sit down and zone out on a movie and not really have to, you know... Sit and read chapters and chapters, and you know it's it's nice to be able to change it up a little bit. So I I go both ways in those aspects. So yeah,
1: you know it's 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 an odd thing. Okay, so I have a hard time sitting down and reading a book, and I don't know if I'm I'm just like ADD. I'm not. But if, you know, if that's what it is, just because I've got other things that I think I can be doing or should be doing and that me sitting there reading a book is almost like impossible for me. I need to be doing other things, multitasking or whatever the case may be. But, you know, I talked about this last week. I brought it up that uh, every year around this time I listen to the audio book, and it's only a 30-minute to maybe an hour at the most audio book of who goes there. And this is The Thing, okay, the John Carpenter The Thing. Of course, it's a little bit different story, but it's based on the original short story. And uh, the BBC, I believe, did this, and you can find it online for free. You can go to YouTube. You can find this thing. If you've never heard it, go do it. Um, It's awesome. And uh, anyway, so all the time I listen to Who Goes There around this time because it's an awesome, like, winter horror story story. And I love that as every bit as much as I do like The Thing movie. So I guess for what it is for me is that I could listen to an audio book as long as somebody's not just sitting there reading because this actually has a cast. It's an audio drama, like old-time radio. I love old-time radio. Um, so if I get that for a book, like I can't sit there and listen to somebody read a book, but I could definitely sit there and listen to a cast of characters, do a radio production of a book, and be just as happy as I am with the sights and colors. And the reason why I bring that up is because um, you all talked about how uh, you can kind of imagine all those things, but I feel like you can do the same thing with the kind of the audio production of a book uh, as you can with reading the book. I know it's not quite the same thing, but I think you get the gist of what I'm going with here.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. You're definitely not drunk enough because you're still making good valid points. Damn it,
3: Trex. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I
1: still I'm sitting here. Numb, this show is I, a lie. <laughs> I know, right? I know. I'm sitting here fucking tore up off my ass, but I'm still making good points. But no, for anybody who hasn't heard that, it won't take much of your time. Go to YouTube. Spend 30 minutes. Listen to Who Goes There. It's awesome stuff. And you know. I actually go back and I, I tell you all, I, I know I've told this before, but I go back and I listen to the Orson Welles the old radio broadcast of War of the Worlds every year around Halloween, just because there's some sort of nostalgic feeling to it for me. I wish that there were more like um, old-time radio productions of things, things like this. Here's one that you all can actually find for free online somewhere, Pet Cemetery Audiobook. Um, that, that's another one that's fan-fucking-tastic. They have a cast of actors. It's not just somebody talking or reading, which I hate, I can't do, but this actually has a cast of actors and stuff. And again, it's every bit as good as the movie, but it's more true to the book, obviously. Cool. Cool. Yeah, so if anybody ever wants to go look that up, it used to be on YouTube. It's not there anymore, but there is an Internet Archive of... um, like public domain things, and it is contained within that archive. If you'll ever decide to go look it up, so Pet Cemetery is in there. Who goes there? They've added music to it for some odd reason. So I would prefer the YouTube one if you ever want to go check that out. Um, and then there's also a BBC version of Salem's Lot that's out there. And I know I've mentioned this before, but you know, do you know who does Barlow's voice in the uh, BBC version of Salem's Lot? Uh-huh. Doug Bradley, oh, Pinhead. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Doug Bradley. yeah. It was so
1: good too. Um, actually, I, I had Vic get Pinhead or Doug Bradley's autograph for me on a Pinhead poster, and if I had been there to meet him, I would have tried to get tracked down like some sort of a, a Salem's Lot picture of some kind for him to sign because he was so good in that. Even though he was, you know, he didn't get a whole lot uh, to do, but he was just awesome and made me like Doug Bradley even more.
2: Something I tell you, you're talking about audio books, and the first audio book I ever got was on a cassette tape when I was like nine, and it was uh, Vincent Price reading uh, uh, The Telltale Heart and The Fall of the House to Usher and The Gold Bug and uh, all these other classic, I agree Poe things. Let me tell you what, that man, I could listen to him all day, like, do stuff. And he's recorded a lot of intros and stuff on a lot of heavy metal albums, you know, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, those kind of, you know, level musicians, too, and it's just like his voice was fantastic. He truly was an icon, you know, and he, he was just amazing all-around presence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, when we did our top 13 horror actors of all time, the YouTube video that somehow got cut off and didn't even have all 13, because I blame Vic for that, by the way, because he's the one supposed to handle that. So any kind of the YouTube fuck-ups, you can just blame Vic as far as I'm concerned. But anyway... Uh, I had Vincent Price ranked number one as the, the top horror actor of all time. Um, so, just my opinion. And you know, Blake, guess who Vic had at number one?
2: If you're telling me Robert England I'm going to shit.
1: It's Robert Englund. I swear to God. It blew my mind, too, because... Uh, Vic's been openly critical of Robert England, but not because it's Robert England, but more so because Freddy fans have pissed him off just like they had me before. Well, he's so
2: he say that shit because I'm not like the rest of the Freddy fans. I just watched uh, 2001 Maniacs and I think I like it just as much, if not more in uh, some of the Nightmare films, you know, and I've, I've followed Robert through his whole career. Speaking of Robert,
0: I'm waiting.
2: Uh, he's seen my uh, Instagram post about your website and stuff, so I'm I'm waiting. I'm, I'm biding time, but I think I might be able to get him.
1: Jen, do you remember what our show is next week? Do you remember me talking about it on the Dahmer Show? Was,
2: uh, was it, the, is it the Lawson Family Murder next week? Yeah, the oh, Lawson yeah, Family yeah. Murder from North Carolina. Yeah.
1: yeah, I've got Trudy. Well, my dad was born right,
2: was North Carolina. He probably knows all
1: about that. Yeah. Jared knows about it. Um, also, I don't know how much he knows, but also, you know, we'll get into kind of the haunted history of that place, too. Um, you know, we wanted to do something. And, fuck it, it happened on Christmas, okay? So... I think during maybe the Depression era, but it might have been right before. It might have been during the Roaring Twenties. I can't remember offhand because I'm too drunk and too lazy to look it up. But I, mean, I think it'll be. A, a <laughs> <product>. <laughs> I think it'll be a really interesting show uh, that kind of goes outside the bounds, and it, it'll be one where you know I actually bring in a guest outside of my friends to uh, you know talk about something like that. Uh, kind of like our Dahmer show. The Dahmer show was fun, uh, but I, I think this one could be more fun. So do your research into that. Uh, I don't know what we're doing on December twenty eighth yet. No idea. Hey Jen, um, let Hmm. me ask you a question. Just because we got you on the line, what is your favorite slasher series? Oh shit!
3: I like it. You know, it's I like the. And, you know, right out of the gate, I have to say Halloween. I just really enjoy those. Like the, mm-hmm. I You know, I watch, you know, Halloween, every Halloween. And, then, you know, I, like you said earlier, some people talk shit about the Rob Zombie remakes. I dug them. Um, so that's probably, you know, my first one that I would go with. After that, it's probably, I, and maybe it's not so much of a series, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, I like those even the revamps, I dig them, so, yeah.
1: So, um, I'll, I, I'll just ask you, since, you know, I've brought it up only a million times on the show, what do you think of Halloween 3? Are you a hater, or do you like it?
3: Oh, um, you know what? It's been a long time, so I can't say anything about it. I need to go back and actually watch a lot of those again. Because um, mm-hmm. I've been slacking on my horror movies lately, I... You know, I got rid of a bunch of them, so I'm broke hoe, and i got to go out and buy more movies. So I'll let you know when I either get Netflix or I start buying movies again, and I'll re them.
1: <laughs> hey, to swing it back around to The Shining, can you all, and maybe you don't remember, maybe you do, can you all kind of talk about your first experience watching The Shining, if you remember it at all, or even maybe one of the first times you saw it? Um,
3: You know, for me, gosh, I can't remember the first time I watched it. You know, my first experience with The Shining, and I know, once again, it's a little off topic. My first experience with The Shining was um, an old, like, uh, tutor of mine helped me write a paper when I was in high school. And she ended up buying me that book after I finished the paper. It's like, uh, congratulations, you finished this paper that you didn't think you were going to make it through. Um, And that was, it was always something special to me, that story itself. Uh, So I have more of a connection with the book because of that than I do of the movie. So that's my
1: first memory of The Shining. Fair enough. What about you, Blake?
2: Um, I was probably, when I saw the original Shining, I was probably, uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years old. I should have been watching it, but, I mean, I just, it happened to be on, and, you know, the whole drinking alcohol thing, and just like I said, it made me initially uncomfortable. I didn't watch the first few minutes of it because it just, it made me uncomfortable because I remember too much about that, you know, and that part of my life continued till I was, like, 17 or 18, so I was like, man, this is hitting a little close to home, so I didn't watch the first part, and then, uh. Uh, you know, the first 30 minutes, and then I came back, I turned it back on, and made it through the rest of the movie. I didn't see the whole movie until probably a couple of years later when I thought I could handle it myself. And uh, that's when I, you know, that's when I got to see the whole thing with open eyes, and I realized that there were other people outside, you know, of myself that experienced these problems growing up with uh alcohol, substance abuse, what it does to a family, what it can make you do to your children and and all that. To me that was more almost more horrifying than anything the movie was about. I mean, it just it, it really resonated with me. I remember I cried, uh, one of the first times I saw it. Um when the little boy, when he's you know, when he's trying to get away from his dad and his dad's chasing him relentlessly. It's like, man, have I been on the other side of that so many times? And seeing another kid deal with it, and how he dealt with it, kind of made me realize that you know, all the glitters isn't gold, and there's other people in the world that have this problem. I'm not the only one. So it kind of helped me see how somebody else looked at the problem. So that's that's my first memory was we're going, wow, somebody else's childhood was just as fucked up as mine was, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody kind of gets something different from these movies or books or whatever the case may be. And, you know, I shared the story about, you know, watching this in psychology class. But it is one of those movies that I feel like, um, even though that's kind of the memory I have of it, I don't remember what my first time seeing it was, just like I don't remember the first time seeing The Exorcist. I'm sure I saw it too young in life, and it's just been part of, you know, uh, part of, my subconscious ever since i don't remember seeing it for the first time but at the same time it's still you know classic in my mind and but still just like the exorcist i'm not sure when it became a classic for me i mean obviously it was truly a classic all along but um, for me i'm not sure when it became a classic but Obviously, now, you know, it's standard viewing for me every single year, so that should tell you something. And, of course, Jer agreed with me. Vic agreed with me. We all kind of thought it was our favorite Stephen King movie, Um, even though, again, uh, completely different. You know, something just hit me that I had never even thought about. Stephen King, Stanley Kubrick, same initials. Weird. Never thought about that until just now. Just saying. It was just kind of a weird connection I made while I was drunk. So I'm proud of that connection. Uh, <laughs> I'll remind you of it tomorrow when you don't remember. Exactly. Remind me of that so I can actually bring it up to somebody and feel like I said something smart. In the meantime, uh, anybody else have anything else they want to throw out? You know, I, I we do have a segment on this show. I think we should do it real quick before we head out. Um, it's What's Grinding My Gears. And, Jen, I don't know if anything's been pissing you off lately other than the Broncos losing, which I wish hadn't happened, but it, it did, unfortunately. Anything <laughs> that's been pissing you off you want to talk about?
3: You know, actually, I've been pretty mellow lately. You know, um, for be, be, being this time of year where I usually am, like, very, like, on edge and everybody can go fuck themselves, I'm kind of like, I'm just <laughs> going with it. So... I'm actually fairly good right now. So nothing's grinding my gears that I'm that comes like up to mind right out the gate.
1: When are you gonna be able to start going skiing? I know that's a big thing for you.
3: I yeah. Well that's that's what's grinding my gears is my ass can't get up into the fucking mountains right now and go slide on some fucking snow. There it is. Hey, I, I,
1: how, how advanced of a skier are you? Because I don't know shit about skiing, but I'm just curious.
3: I don't ski. Um, I snowboard. And I'm kind of intermediate. Like, I started when I was about 15. Um, it's mm-hmm. a very expensive thing to do. So I kind of stopped for a little bit because I didn't have my own gear. And then a few years ago, I actually linked up with somebody who works in a ski shop. So... When you work in that industry, you get gear for freaking cheap, and he hooks me up. So I've got, like, two boards. I've got great jackets, snow pants, helmets. Like, I'm set and ready to fucking go. Um, So I'm kind of intermediate because in the last few years, it's something I've picked up again and started really getting into. I just, it's a great time. I like to go, and I like to, you know, occasionally puff on the list and, uh, the beer, and then you slide down the mountain, and you drink more, and, you know, it's an all-day thing. By about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you're doing really well.
1: <laughs> uh, another question I want to ask you, how about that chocolate peanut butter porter? How was it?
3: Uh, it's pretty good. Um, it's about, you know, for me, I can only drink about one at a time because it is a little sweet, but it's it's pretty decent, you know, for 10 bucks a six-pack. You can't really complain, so... Yeah, I
1: recommend it if you find it. Nice, nice, I like it. So um, let, let's go with uh, Blake now. Blake, you've entertained me every single time with what's grinding your gear. So what do we got this week?
2: Oh well, just a combination of things. I've got this record I'm working on, um, and it's it's, it's taking a lot of time, but I love it. But again, it's just it's it's time for somebody to sit in a recording studio for hours and. And, and compose, and write, and hold a guitar, and sit there, and tape, you know, do take after take, I've got a, an engineer who's one of the best, but he will, if he thinks I can do better, he damn sure let, lets me know that I can do better, like, he'll walk up to me, I'll, I'll do this amazing run, it's, like, worthy of, like, England amounts team. Team, he'd be like, dude, what the fuck was that, <laughs> and I'd be like, man, that was some goodness, he said, no, do it faster, then it'll be goodness. So I was like, you're a you're a dick. But okay. <laughs> um, so, but other, other than that, I, I've been working on my book, and um, I've come to a stopping point because uh, Andy Mangels, the one who wrote the Nightmares on Elm Street, uh, Nightmares on Elm Street rather, series, he's got a timeline that he's like going to provide me with once he digs it up, and um, that'll help me, you know, move on a little further because I want to include some of his work because I think some of his work goes. Uh, you know, a little bit, un, you know, uncredited when it's fantastic. I mean, he's co-written a bunch of amazing books and X-Files guides to a lot of the other characters. He's written a couple that were on the bestseller list. He finished Roswell. You know, wrote a, I wrote a book with another author on uh, finishing up the finale of you know, Roswell, the TV show. And You know, I just want to get this book done, man, because I, I'm going to self-publish this first one and see where it goes. I've got a lot of good uh, people talking about it and a lot of people want to read it, so. You've heard a little bit of it, so other than that, I've been pounding away on the keyboard, uh, you know, writing and writing and writing, and there's just like eight, nine, ten chapters in, I'm just like on a roll, and then I have to every once in a while just stop, so besides the fact that I have to write, you know, a book and then write music, I guess, there's you know, just, I feel tired, and I haven't been sleeping well, you know, so I'm like, man, shit and then this and then today just mondays just kind of suck in general sometimes unless i'm listening to the show or something and they're, they're okay but uh <laughs> you know, just christmas is coming around and christmas is kind of a you know it's a little depressing for me but i mean i have you know kids the family and i love christmas but it just it's a little depressing you know for other reasons i won't get into here but um I'll get into that some other time. But other than that, just fucking work. And, you know, I teach, so it's like just work, 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 and no time for me. So I'm going to take some fucking time for me. One of these days, I'm going to take some time for me. I don't have time to do shit anymore.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Time to me was go watch Krampus, which I enjoyed. Hey, Jen, what did you think of Krampus? Yeah, you know,
3: I I enjoyed it. I thought it was, you know, weird and funny and it was just kind of everything that I expected from Michael mm. Doherty as a filmmaker. Um yep. and then it kind of also made me wonder. I was like, Well, he did trick or treat, now he's done Krampus. Is he gonna do like a twisted Easter movie or some weird shit like that? Like is he on a holiday kick? Like, is that his thing? Like
2: be one he needs to, there needs to be a mother's day a, fa, a fa, you know a father's day there needs to be something easter massacre there
1: needs to be something i still say eli roth <laughs> needs to do thanksgiving oh, hell yeah
2: <laughs>
1: Yeah, that shit needs to happen but uh yeah i like Krampus. um i'm not going to sit here and tell you it's my favorite movie ever because it's dg-13 and i think that was part of it for me it was it was really fun But it pissed me off that there wasn't more gore. But that was really, I think, my main criticism of the movie is that there wasn't more gore. But that was really it. Uh, It was fun. It was funny. And I enjoyed it. And you know what? It'll probably go in the Christmas rotation every single year. So as soon as that comes out, yeah, that'll be the thing I'll watch next year and the year after and the year after. But I didn't get into what's grinding my gears. So I'll make it quick. I won't waste everybody's time. Um my neighbor's house was broken into about a week ago, something like that. And I'm pretty sure it was an inside job. Some punk ass kids did it and like cuz they stole Jordans and a gun or, and stuff like that. And I don't I wouldn't say that I live in the worst part of the world, but I don't live in the best part either. It's really none of the, either one. Um but also I think that type of shit goes on everywhere. But I just want to say if anybody pulls some shit like that with me, I will find you and I will fucking kill you. And I'm going to eat you, too, like a fucking cannibal. And I will do horrible things to you, because I, I, I don't put up with that shit. I hate people anymore. I swear to God. People are always doing fucking crazy shit, and I'm done with it. That's the thing that's grinding my gears. I'm tired of being, people being scumbags and doing things like breaking into people's houses. You know, I don't own a gun. I don't want to own a gun. Don't need to own a gun. I have a machete. And that'll work for me. if somebody tries mm-hmm. to break into my house, they're going to wish they hadn't. We don't all no.
2: suck, Travis. Stop compartmentalizing. We don't all suck. We're, some of us are good
1: people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there's a handful that are good. I mean, for the most part, though, when we're driving out on the road and some asshole's being an asshole, that's how they are in everyday life.
4: Pretty much. Just
1: saying. <laughs>
4: okay.
1: I don't know. You know, maybe I'm just being too harsh on people because it's Monday and people piss me off today. But, you know, you I, I just have no to tolerance host for host people who are thieves.
2: Like you feel better, sir.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just have no tolerance for people who are thieves. So, you know what I'm saying? It it, it It's just too goddamn bad. I can't bo- booby trap my own house. So if somebody tries to break in, they can just break their leg and get caught in a bear trap or something. Hey, that's fucking ridiculous. They shouldn't be illegal. Come on now. I should be able to do that to people who want to break in, but sadly, I'd probably catch a mailman or something and get in trouble. So it is what it is. Um, So that is my psychotic rampage for this week. Uh, That's all I've got. If you all have anything else, go for it. Blake, if you want to throw out your musical stuff, go for it. Jen, we'll talk soon. How's that sound?
3: Sounds good.
1: All right. You take care. You too. Yeah. Uh, well, Blake, go ahead.
4: Throw out
2: something. Uh, yeah, we're regrouping right now and working on a lot of things structurally within the band, so uh, there's going to be Everything a Everything okay? Of... What's that?
1: Everything okay? I noticed you guys had a gig canceled. I didn't know if it was uh, yeah, anything major or just not, venue bullshit.
2: part of it. We're, we're regrouping. Some things happen within the structure of the band, and we're just regrouping and taking some time to, you know... Boom analyze the situation and fix it but uh, outside of that uh, Elm Street's Last Rats you know it's a Facebook group come join it and we talk about you know lots of Freddy Krueger stuff and everybody shows off their collections uh, Travis has endorsed it and he's a member Yeah, I share
1: pictures in there. I don't have time for a lot of conversation, unfortunately, because usually if I get into a conversation, it ends up being this long thing that I didn't intend for it to be. But I do share pictures in there. So everybody, if you're a Freddy fan, or even if you're not, and maybe you want to kind of relive your childhood, it's a good place to be.
2: Yes, yes, it is. Uh, the wife and I co founded it, and it's up to over 1,000 members now, and it's a fun place. You'll learn some stuff, you'll like some stuff, you won't like some stuff, but you'll never be bored, and you'll have a good time. So it's a, it's a good one. If anybody wants to hit up the band, though, and check out some of the stuff that's going on, it's facebook.com forward slash a life below zero. And we've got a reverb nation, same thing, reverbnation.com forward slash a life below zero. Uh, other than that, I really don't have anything else.
1: All right, man. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, next week, I'll give you a break. I'll talk about the Lawson Family Murder, no matter who joins me. But I'll tell you what. If if you know, I find out Vic's not going to be able to join the show and you'd like to join the discussion, I'll let you know a couple days beforehand so you can kind of do some research on the subject. I know you're into that type of subject just like I am.
2: Oh, I've done, I've done bucket loads of research already. I was hoping maybe I'd still end up being a part, but if you've got a guest, I don't want to intrigue
1: I do have a guest, but I don't know how long a guest can stretch. You know what I mean? We can definitely talk about it after the guest if we need to or whatever the case may be. Um, it's it's hard to do a two-person interview where two people are interviewing a person, so what I'll do is um, maybe I'll give you the high sign whenever the guest has left the line, or if you're listening, you could just call in after. Well, that would
2: be fine, whichever.
1: that's probably the best way to go for us. That way we're not stepping on each other. And then we can talk more about it amongst ourselves. Because, again, I don't – it really depends. Sometimes when you get a guest on, they can span two-hour show. I'm thinking of Kevin M. Sullivan or or the guy who was on for the uh, Dahmer episode. But then other times, you know, you can only get so far. So I always plan on about an hour and if they're really good I'll go too. So we'll see what happens. But uh yeah, next week just be on standby. I love having you on, man.
2: Well I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, if you want me to if you want me to call in, just uh, Facebook message me or something or text me. You've got my my info, so just text me, you know, and just call my phone number or do whatever and just say, Hey, Bring your ass on the show and I'll just go,
1: okay. <laughs> yes, sir. And I will put up an official post uh, post Jesus, I told you I was drunk about our nightmare on Elm Street show that will be coming out, you know, in January. So starting on January fourth, I believe. Um January, February twenty
2: second. Yes, please use that picture the wife, did. I think it's a great
1: picture. I absolutely so. will. Be on the lookout. Trav dot WordPress dot com. So it's Trav in Vic Horror dot wordpress.com we're on twitter at trav and Vic horror and just look us up on facebook trav and Vic's drunken horror adventures um we're on periscope instagram all that bullshit just look us up and we'll be back next week 9 p.m same bat time same bat channel i'll talk to you later blake all right have a good one bro later on everybody later.